0: One of the most fascinating days in my life was in June of 2007, when I sat among 400 students um, on Omaha Beach in Normandy, France. It was an incredible experience, and one that I'll never forget. Um, We were thinking back to D-Day, June 6, 1944, and on that day um, in, in World War II, Allied forces bravely moved into this northern France by means of a beach landing. Uh, we were listening to a British war historian as he walked us through the events of that day. And he told us about, showed us the, the, the ridge, the cliffs where the army rangers had climbed. He showed us the massive German pillboxes that tried to, to, to stop the invasion. It was almost a poetical moment. It was almost a beautiful moment. It was almost a serene moment as we thought back on that day. And yet, in reality... That day was a bloodbath. In reality, there was nothing pretty about that day whatsoever. In reality, many lives were lost. Many many um, people were wounded. It, it was a tough day. It was a difficult time. That's what war is. War is not very pretty. War is always costly and deadly, and it always has been a part of human history Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Cain uh, fought with his brother Abel and murdered him, war's always been a part of our history. There have been great wars, memorable wars from that day forward even into today. Um, Many great wars have been fought and and all of them are bloody and costly. So last week, we were a little bit surprised when John opened or, or saw a window in heaven or looked up into heaven And we were a bit surprised that he saw warfare. War and heaven just don't seem to go together. They seem to be incongruent terms, and certainly we don't associate them together. But there it was, this cosmic conflict that we've been talking about for the past two weeks, this conflict between good and evil, this conflict between God and Satan, this war that took place in heaven. Well, today, this week, the war in heaven comes down to earth. The cosmic conflict is finished today, but it's finished on an earthly battlefield. Uh, Billy Graham said this about this event. Billy said, the Bible plainly forecasts the coming of yet another great war. It will be a war to eclipse anything the world has ever seen. It will embrace most of the nations of the world, and its focal point will be in the Middle East, where the armies of the world will someday deploy themselves, centering at Mount Megiddo. This great war has been called the Battle of Armageddon. In the midst of this terrifying war that could destroy civilization, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth in glory and power to judge the nations of the world and set up his own glorious kingdom. Wow. What an event. I can't wait to dig in. But first, a recap might be a little bit helpful. You remember we talked about this cosmic conflict. We talked about, talked about the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And, and we talked about the importance of the seventh of those and, and how they would relate. We talked about the war in heaven. We, we saw the, the last week the Christmas story, if you will, in a different light. And now we see today's battle, the final battle, the climax of this book, we're convinced. And yet the climax to this book is somewhat anticlimactic, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little while. What I want us to see today is is several passages. We're going to be looking our way through Revelation. So I hope you have your tablet, your phone ready. I hope you got your Bible open, whatever you want to follow along with, because we'll be looking at a lot of Scripture and let the Scripture, let the book of Revelation speak to us about this coming battle, this battle to, to top all battles, this battle that ends in the consummation of everything that we've been looking at and looking for. An incredible view. I am recall remembering that in the first chapter of this revelation, we saw that John said, blessed is the one who reads these words and hears these words. So we'll read a lot of scripture today. First of all, we're going to look at this coming battle. In Revelation 16, I want to pick up reading with verse number 12 and read down just a little bit to give you the idea of this battle that's coming. He says in verse 12, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the river Euphrates, and his water was dried up. By the way, can you imagine that scene? The water of the Euphrates, the mighty Euphrates, dried up. Why? To prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world. Why? To assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Look. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed uh, clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. What a scene. The preparation for the battle. The preparation for the final battle. This battlefield is is in a place that the Hebrews called Armageddon. Now, this is a real place, and later I'll try to talk about the significance or why that is significance. This is not a symbol, this Armageddon. It's not a symbolic place. It's a very real place. You can go there today. I've been there several occasions. I've seen this place where this final battle is said to take place. The significance of the name Armageddon is really unknown. Now, when I think of Armageddon or when when I say Armageddon, you're probably, your mind goes to some movie you saw, some end time event that you've read about, maybe some pictures that depict certain things. But really, the word Armageddon is, is just a simple placing together of some Hebrew words. It's a transliteration in the Greek of the Hebrew term Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo, which is the mountain of Megiddo. Why this place? Why the significance here? Why is this place chosen for the final battle? Professor Robert Cargill from the University of Iowa, also um, uh, head of religious studies, says this about Megiddo. He says, Megiddo has been the location of many important battles. It was a place worth fighting over because the site is located at the crossroads of the Jezreel Valley, an important strategic location that overlooked several trade routes, including the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea, and the Aruna Pass. Megiddo was identified as the location of the end of the world because it had been the epicenter of armed conflict throughout Israel's history. Now, I shared with my wife that I was going to have to be very not to just nerd out over this particular fact because history uh, uh, just excites me, and, and, and I've been to this place, and so I can see it in my head. The epicenter of battle, Megiddo was on a mountain, a part of the Carmel Range. Megiddo overlooked several this this large valley, this Jezreel Valley. I, I'm telling you, I've been there. You can see for miles as you look over this Jezreel Valley. It was also an important place because it was one of three gorges, one of three gaps in the mountains where people could travel through, where they could cut through from the east um, uh, to go west toward the Via Maris, the way of the sea. It was at a crossroads between Asia, between Europe, and between Africa. And so it was an important spot. Armies, if they were moving, would march in these places. Armies could be seen from far off. And so it was a key location. This huge valley of Jezreel, this valley of higher Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, is the perfect place for such a battle as we see shaping up here in our text. So it's a real battle. And it's coming. Now, the second thing I want to do is take you to the 19th chapter. We're going to skip over a few things that, that are almost serve as an interlude. You can read them on your own and you can see this interlude. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about them more next week. But this uh, 19 is where we pick up the battle once again. And we see a different view of Christ than we see in much of the New Testament. We see a warrior Christ, a conquering Christ. Now you remember we said in the very first chapter that, that we believe, or very first message, I'm sorry, we said we believe that, that this book, this jewel of a book, has, has been taken from the church. The church, because of bad theology or frustration or from fear or for whatever reason, the church has not read this book, has not made, it, made this gem available, and we've missed out on so much. Well, now listen, this is a key message that we're coming up on, and I believe one of the things that the church has missed out on, and it is seeing this conquering Christ in a fresh new way. So look at chapter 19 and beginning with verse 11, listen to what he says. Then I saw heaven open. There again, another window is opened, right? If you were with me the first week, it, Toto's pulled back a little bit more of the curtain, if you will. We're able to see a little bit more of Christ unveiled. We see Christ revealed. Remember, that's the purpose of this book. The revelation, the unveiling, the uncovering, the pulling back the curtain to see the conquering Christ. Let's take a look. He says, then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Now, wait a minute. We just saw a white horse, not many chapters back, but this is a different white horse. This is not one of the four horsemen. This white horse, this rider is the one that the four horsemen were intent, were trying to, um, to, try to mimic, but this is a different rider. Look at this rider, and I think you'll soon recognize who he is. We don't have to guess at this symbology. It's so clear. There's a white horse. The rider is called Faithful. And true, not many can bear that title. Not many can bear that name. Already, I'm seeing Jesus written all over this writer. And with this, or and with justice, he judges and makes war. You remember the scriptures tell us that it is Jesus who is the judge. We're not the judge. God has given. God the Father has given judgment into His hands. So with justice, He judges and He makes war. Look at verse 12. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. Now, look at this. He wore a robe. Now, now, that's significant, but the next part is significant. He wore a robe dipped in blood dipped in blood. Reminds us immediately of the cross. Reminds us immediately of his black back that poured as the cat of nine tails would go through his flesh, that poured with blood. Thought, we think about his side that was pierced and blood came out. And here he has a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The word of God. By the way, that word is Logos. It's the same word that John uses in his gospel to introduce the book. When he says the word, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Logos, that's here it is. The word of God is his name. Now look at verse 14. Are you getting excited? I'm just seeing it build. It says, The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses. Think with me just a minute. All the saints of God following on white horses, wearing pure white linen that had been supplied to them, by the way. Verse 15, A sharp sword came from his mouth. Now, what is that? A sharp sword coming from his mouth. I don't think that's a literal thing, but I, I think it's very predictive of what's about to happen. I don't want to get ahead. I don't want to ruin the end. But this, what, this sword coming from the mouth is significant. Why? It tells you. So that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them. That is really, literally shepherd them. But he will shepherd them with an iron rod with a stiff rod the rod of the shepherd was used for many reasons and for many things but among them was to discipline or to judge the sheep he will also trample the winepress of the fear anger of God the almighty and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh look at his name king of kings and lord of lords now there's two things that come to my mind when I read this immediately. First of all, this is clearly Jesus. There, there's, there's no doubt about who this is, who this rider of this white horse is. It is Jesus, but it is Jesus as we have not seen him. The second thing I notice is this is not the, the, the meek and mild servant who comes to be abused. This is not the meek and mild one who comes as a lamb for the slaughter. This is not the one who is born and laid among the, the lowing cattle and the, the buying sheep. This is... This is is a king. This is a warrior Jesus. And, And unfortunately, sometimes this image is taken from us, it's robbed from us because we haven't looked at this book. Again, this book is incredible because it gives us this fresh view of Jesus. And what a mighty warrior view it is. It's funny, isn't it? When I look at this view of Jesus, what it does is, as a follower of Christ, it brings me comfort. It brings me comfort. And by the way, follower of Christ takes on a new dimension here, doesn't it? Because it says he's followed by others on these white horses. But listen, if, it's, if I'm not a follower of Christ, frankly, this is a disturbing picture. Perhaps more disturbing even than the dragon, as we'll see. Now, interestingly, John gives us a very similar uh, description in the first chapter. You recall we read back in chapter 1 that John was able to see a vision of Jesus, let me go back and remind you what it is. Listen, it's very similar. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read these words. This is his vision, chapter 1. He says, The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes, just like we just saw, were like a fiery flame. His feet were like a fine bronze as it were fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters he had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun at full strength and when i saw him i fell on his feet i fell at his feet like a dead man he laid his right hand on me and said don't be afraid i'm the first and the last and the living one a very similar picture here at the opening of the book, John introduces us to this coming one, this coming king, this coming warrior, and he says, I see this picture, and when you see this picture, note the words he says. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And yet, when we arrive in this last chapter, when we arrive at chapter 19 and we see the same picture of this conquering Christ, there is no comforting word, don't be afraid. One who is in front of him does need to be afraid. One who is not with him, not in his army, needs to be afraid. And so we need to understand that while the child of God does not need to look at this picture with fear, if you're not a follower of Christ, you should, frankly. And you should see that this Christ is coming to conquer Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite writers, said it this way. He said, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 is the false Christ, but the rider, this rider is the true Christ. He's not coming in the air to take his people home, but to the earth with his people to conquer his enemies and to establish his kingdom. What a picture. This coming war at a place called Har-Magedo or Armageddon, this coming final battle when the Kings of the earth will gather together and the conquering Christ, a warrior Christ makes an appearance, appearance. But now we're going to get a little bit of insight into that battle and what happens. And you're going to notice how this victory takes place and it takes place very quickly. Look down to verse, 20, uh, verse 17. He says, Then I saw an angel. Once again, another thing that John saw. The things that John saw are important In the book, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders and the flesh of everyone, both free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast, the king of the earth And their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner and along with it the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who had accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horses. And all the birds ate of their Flesh. So here's the climactic moment that we talked about. Here's that moment when the battle comes to a, for, to, to, to a front. Here's that moment when Christ comes, warrior Christ comes and faces the armies of the earth and the beast and the false prophet and the red dragon. And here's what's anticlimactic. It's actually a pretty short battle. As a matter of fact, as far as we can see, just one word is spoken. He defeats them with the sword coming out of the mouth, simply with a word. Short battle. There have been some short battles in our history. Think about it, look at them, they're interesting. The Falklands War only lasted for 74 days, the Greco Turkish War lasted for 30 days. The, Gregorian, the, the Georgian, I'm sorry, the Georgian-Armenian war lasted for 24 days. The Indo-Pakistani war only lasted 13 days. The Arab-Israeli war, Six-Day War, only lasted well six days. The Anglo-Zanzibar war was only 38 minutes. And yet, this one is shorter than them all. As far as we can see, one word is spoken. One word was actually spoken that decided this war 2,000 years, at least 2,000 years earlier. Uh, 2,000 years ago for us, these words were spoken. You remember? Jesus was on the cross. And as he gave himself as a sacrifice for sin, as he gave himself for us, as as he died and took the wrath of God for mankind upon himself... (laughs) as he suffered there and his blood flowed and as he willingly submitted to the father and the father's judgment so that he could bring us to a place of redemption so that he could adopt us as sons and daughters so that he could purchase our salvation so that he could atone for our sins there on the cross. You remember he said, Telestai. it's finished. It's done. At that moment, the war was over. At that moment, the war is done, but now it's consummated. Now we see it come about. Now we see the reality of it as once again, the armies of the earth have gathered. I don't know what that sight must be going to be like, but it must be incredible. Of all the armies that have gathered at Har of all the battle, the, the, the armies that have gathered in the valley of Jezreel, As all of the armies that have fought there, as the battles that have fought there from Josiah to Napoleon and beyond, none quite like this, as all the armies of the world are gathered together in one place. One of the Hebrew prophets says, that the bloodshed will be such that it will be to the horse's bridle. And yet when Christ comes, it's done with a word. Why? You say, why, Pastor Eddie, why this war, why this battle, why all this blood, why is all this necessary, and how can we find encouragement in that? Well, turn the page to chapter 20. In chapter 20, we see an incredible consummation of the kingdom that we've been talking about, that Christ has been talking about, that we've been looking at for years. Look at verse verse 1 of chapter 20 and read these words. John said, Then I saw an angel. Once again, (laughs) this is one of the broadens. I saw something else. I saw an angel. This angel was coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon. (laughs) Don't you want to just cheer right there? I mean, can you imagine watching this on screen? Can you imagine watching this? And can you imagine the cheer that erupts when this angel comes down and seizes the great red dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil? and Satan. Think of all the people this dragon has tormented. Think of all the trouble this dragon has oriented. Think of all the attacks against our Savior that this dragon has mustered up. But now, he's seized, and he's bound for a thousand years. Now, as we read through this text, that, that little phrase, thousand years, becomes very important. Watch how many times it's mentioned. Verse 3 says, He threw them into the, threw them into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. We'll talk about that later. I I know that seems a little confusing, but we'll talk about that. Verse 4, he says, Then I I saw thrones, and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I saw the souls... Not only thrones, but souls. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Can I read that one more time? They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Man, I wish I had an hour to talk about that verse, right? What an incredible thought to see this first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection that are believers, those are believers who have died before. The second death has no power over them. We'll talk about that later, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now we see warrior Jesus become King Jesus. Just as a conqueror is expected to set up his kingdom in the conquered place, Jesus sets up his kingdom right here. Perhaps that's why Megiddo. Perhaps that's why Har Megiddo, just a short distance from Jerusalem. Who knows? But this we know. The kingdom is now set up by the King. So now we learn that Jesus will set up his kingdom and his throne here on the earth and will reign in power for a period of a thousand years. No reason that I can see that we can't take this literally. No reason that I can see that we can't take this thousand years literally. As a matter of fact, it makes plain sense to do that. At the end of this time, as Christ is reigning with his people for this thousand years, at the end of this time, Satan and some on the earth will make one final last grasp effort to steal the throne, and he'll again be met with a swift and final defeat. After this, heaven and earth will be completely redeemed and remade for us to live with our king for eternity. What will get there? next week. We can't go there today. We'll get there next week. Now, I know there's questions. You think, well, why is he released again? Why is he let go? Why does he have to be once again freed? I'm not sure that we'll know that for eternity, until eternity, but certainly it has a lot to do with the fact that our God has given us a choice, that God gives us opportunities to reject or to accept. He's given you that opportunity this morning. You can accept or you can reject You can accept this king of kings and lord of lords. You can accept this lamb who has come as a slaughter for the sacrifice of your sins. Or you can reject him. Now let me finish with a couple of takeaways. A couple of things we can take from this. First of all, this. The named place of the battle and its history of warfare, to me, helps us to see that this battle is an unseen reality in the future. This is not just a figment of his imagination. It's not just a dream. This is the Reality, unseen for now, but a reality in the future. It is a literal battle that is yet to take place. Secondly, Jesus will rule and reign over redeemed and restored earth as legitimate King of creation. That's right. We've been talking about this kingdom come. We've been praying, Your kingdom come. Well, guess what? Here we see the consummation, the fulfillment of that as Christ reigns over redeemed and a restored creation. And finally, this view of Jesus gives us confidence in the promises of Scripture today. You see, all of the Scriptures that we hold to, all of the Scriptures that we hold dear, all of those promises of the Scriptures that we cling to and and we have hope in, this passage, this view of Jesus gives us confidence that these promises can be kept. Again, I think the enemy, our enemy, has tried to hide this view of Jesus from us. How many have told me since we started this series, you know, I've never read Revelation before. Why? Because I'm scared of it or because it makes me afraid or or because it gets me frustrated or because I don't understand it. Listen, my friend, you're missing a jewel here. You're missing a gem here. Here we see Christ as the conqueror and as the king. and That gives me confidence. That gives me assurance that all the things he promised are indeed true, and indeed will come about. So this morning, our takeaway is a little different. Usually we try to give you a takeaway at this point, something to do, something to apply, something that we can put into our practice. And and I, and I want you to put this into practice, but it's not really a whole lot to do. Here's our takeaway. Here's what I want from today. Our hope today is that you'll see Jesus as the King of glory. That you'll behold the Lamb of God, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. That you'll see Jesus meek and mild as conqueror, as warrior, and as king. And that you'll worship him as such. And that your view of Jesus, this different view of conquering Jesus, will give you assurance to cling to the promises of God. I'll tell you one passage that comes to life when you read this. I'll tell you one passage that just comes to life in a fresh new way after seeing this king of glory. This conquering warrior, Jesus, Romans 8. Romans 8, Paul wrote these words that resonate within us today. He said, what then? What are we to say about these things if God is for us? If conquering Jesus, if warrior Jesus is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We could add so many things there, couldn't we? As it is written, because of you, We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not even a cosmic... Conflict, not even a big red dragon or a beast that rises from the earth or from the sea, or all the armies, all the political powers that be, all the things that can come against me are powerless. Why? Because we serve a conquering warrior Jesus who's coming to establish, to consummate the kingdom. One day in the future. I don't know when it'll be, but I know that it's coming. God bless you. Thank you for letting me share today. And by the way, thanks for just being a part of this broadcast. Thanks for being a part of our online campus. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love for you to just reach out. There's people waiting to pray with you right now. There's, we, there's people ready to chat with you right now. Feel free to give us a call. May I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you, O God, for what you are to us yesterday, today, and even tomorrow. And one of these days, we believe you're coming as a conquering king to literally set up a kingdom on this earth. And we're glad you've invited us to be a part of that kingdom. I pray for my friends who are watching and listening right now. That, Lord Jesus, you would invite them to be a part of this kingdom as well. And that their response today would be, yes, Lord, yes, I'll follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.